Did you know one third of all food produced around the world doesn't make it to our plates? That's about 1.4 billion tons, or enough to feed 2 billion people each year. Welcome to Sustainability Matters Today, where you'll learn about the fantastic work people and organizations are doing right now to heal our planet through environmentally friendly products and methodologies. My name is Daniel Hartz, and I speak with amazing champions of sustainability who prove a clean and beautiful future on Earth is possible because green practices oftentimes make financial sense. I aim to uncover the important role money plays. In people's decisions to adopt and commit to environmentally friendly practices in order to create a chain reaction of positive change. In each episode, you'll also learn practical steps you can take every day to live a more eco friendly lifestyle. Let's jump in. In this episode of the Sustainability Matters Today podcast, I interview Rosalind Rathouse, founder of the Cookery School at Little Portland Street and champion of sustainable cooking. The Cookery School offers classes on simple, straightforward, and delicious cooking using sustainable methods and ingredients. They hold a three star rating, the highest possible, from the Sustainable Restaurant Association for the last eight years, making them London's only and most sustainable cooking school. I had the privilege of taking an Indian food cooking class at the Cookery School, and it was fantastic. Everything Rosalind describes as far as their approach to sustainability, Fresh ingredients and teaching style is true. I was really impressed. If you have the chance to go to a class at the Cookery School, I highly recommend it. Please make sure to subscribe to the Sustainability Matters Today podcast to learn more about other champions of sustainability like Rosalind. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for joining me, Rosalind. Really great to have you on the show. Such a pleasure to be here because. The message, the sustainable message, is so important. So I'm always really thrilled to be able to share that. Great. And,、uh, and I'd love to hear more about it because the cookery school has such a strong sustainability ethos to it.、Uh, but before we go into that, I'd love to hear a bit more about your background、uh, and how the cookery school began. So, I guess, first question is when did you know you wanted to cook professionally? Well, you, this sounds really strange, but in the day, you did domestic science at school. And I really had wanted to do domestic science and cook when I was a teenager. My father was a doctor, and my mum and he wouldn't, dream, wouldn't have dreamt of allowing me to do that.、Um, I had to cook recreationally at home because my father thought I ought to have been a doctor. I never was a doctor, and I never really had any aspirations to be a doctor.、Right. I always really wanted to cook. Got it. So, yeah, the, the medical career never was quite the calling. No, it certainly was not. <laughs> And at what point did the cookery school begin? Cookery school began because I was a study skills tutor and I was teaching a boy who needed to do some retakes. And、uh, he had to take a year off. That's the way the system works. Right. And、um, to go to university, you have to, as you know, attain certain grades. So he took time、mm. off, and then I was seeing him all the while. And he said, once he'd redone his retakes and his year off, what am I going to do now? And there was nothing that he fancied. And I finally said, What about learning to cook? And he said, I'd love to do that. And there were no cookery schools in London that had a space for him. 
There were only two major schools that he could go to then, and they were both full. So I said to him, if I had time, I would teach you to cook, because in my 20s, I had had a cookery school in South Africa. And um, I went home that night. My kids were home, and they said, this is your chance. Right. My children were grown up at that point. They said, Mom, you've always wanted to cook. This is your chance to do it. Why don't you do it now? And that's how cookery school began. Perfect. Sounds like uh, it was the right time and place, and it just yes. it just happened. Well, it did. I was still working, and I had promised um, the parents of all the children that I was then teaching. I had a very large practice. I was teaching about 40 children a week. Oh, wow. I wouldn't abandon their children until they no longer needed me. So cookery school started slowly with me doing lessons over the weekend, the odd evenings, and other teachers working during the week. Gotcha. That's that's nice. It was a natural progression, and it started slowly and expanded into uh, what it is today. I had no idea it would, quite honestly. Oh, that's that's nice. It's a pleasant surprise in that case, isn't it? Yes, um, it's a surprise that it's grown in the, to the extent it has. But when I started, my aim was to teach people how to cook because I just love teaching people how to cook. And there's something really lovely about seeing people gain pleasure from cooking and acquiring new skills that are so easy that they have thought were tricky. Um, I didn't imagine that I was going to be running a business. Right. Um, and that's meant learning loads of new things that I had never imagined I would have to tackle. Mm, yeah, I, I can only imagine. And why did you choose to make sustainability such a core part of your of the overall school, but also in all of the classes? Well, I have a daughter that's actually an environmental psychologist. And even when she was at school, she was already expressing an interest in sustainability. And in those early days, long, really a long time ago, probably 30 years ago, 35 years ago, hmm. she used to say, Mom, why don't you just buy one or two organic products whenever you can? Because that way, other people, if other people are doing the same thing, you start moving things forward. She was so right. She was at school when she said that. She was absolutely right. Right. Because that's exactly what's happened. So from many years ago, the idea of being sustainable was put into my mind by my daughter, I have to say. And so when I opened cookery school, a lot of those ideas were already established. Mm. In the early days, you couldn't get much in the way of organic, uh, much in the way of organic anything. It was really an uphill battle finding suppliers because we would find that, say, we found, we had a couple of meat suppliers, and um, they would give us organic meat, but then supposedly organic meat we'd accidentally find out that if they didn't have something that was organic that we'd ordered, they'd throw in something non-organic. Oh, wow. So we then realized that we could only work with people that were purely organic, that you couldn't trust your supplier. And um, vegetables, one of the few people in those early days that had vegetables that were organic was Waitrose, but a very, very small selection. And then, of course, Independence. And we had a very hard and fast rule that certain ingredients had to be organic. We had no choice. And if they, if we couldn't obtain them, we just left them out. Mm -hmm. And that happened very, very often. If we could find a substitute, we could, would. If we couldn't, 
we would just leave them out. Root vegetables were particularly hard to obtain. We could usually get carrots and onions, sometimes leeks, but turnips, parsnips, beetroots were well nigh impossible to lay hands on sometimes. Interesting. Must be very different now. Oh, totally different. Totally different. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even at Waitrose, they have that whole organic section with pretty much everything. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's um, We have an organic supplier. Um, we have a non-organic supplier that can even supply organic uh, ingredients. And, of course, um, the supermarkets. And more than that, the farmer's markets. Right. Of course. Yeah, farmer's markets are, are great. Have you seen a lot of demand for classes on sustainable cooking? Uh, is it, I mean, is it something that students are asking for or have been asking for or talking about frequently, just kind of sustainability overall as, a, as an idea? This will surprise you. No, we haven't. Right. Um, we see the people that come in to cookery school as offering us an opportunity to allow them to taste organic ingredients to see how different they are. We talk about the wonky veg that we have, the um, the fact that we no longer use plastic in the kitchen. Every lesson has uh, not a heavy talk because you can't be preachy, right. but a very light talk at the start of every lesson on what our sustainable practices are, just so we're sharing them and people have the opportunity of asking questions and learning about sustainability. And we always say every tiny step that you take towards doing something sustainable is a step in the right direction. Um, there's a problem with sustainability. The very word sustainability almost suggests a worthiness, and it's not like that at all. I think with people in the know, sustainability is something that you just accept and move forward with. And we do talk about sustainability at Cuckoo School because we haven't been able to find a different word. I'm using the word ethical more and more often these days because I think that one is having to make ethical decisions all the time about how far you go in your own world as to what you buy and what you do. And I think that's where the trickiness comes in with it all. Right. Last night, we had um, an event at Cookery School. We ran it for women in the food industry, mm -hmm. and it was called Sustainable Gastronomy Day yesterday. Gotcha. And it ended with a wonderful event at Cookery School where we used waste products, and um, we had an audience of people that were interested and in sustainable gastronomy and waste and all the um, everything associated with that and some wonderful women speakers who actually deal with waste like rubies in the rubble, oh, cool. waste not, food chain, and a really good panel. And um, Pervencha um, Todiwala, whose husband runs a, um, an Indian restaurant, cooking some Indian food using those ingredients. Mm -hmm. I cooked an asparagus soup because asparagus is seasonal, using every part of it, of the asparagus, so nothing was wasted and making uh, a savoury bread and butter pudding, every, introducing everyone to the idea of a savoury bread and butter pudding because milk and bread are two of the most thrown away and wasted ingredients. 
and I wanted to show them how by varying ingredients and putting anything that you have left over into a bread and butter pudding, you can come up with the most delicious savory meal. And then, of course, I did a regular sweet bread and butter pudding. Interestingly, using some brioche that we had in our freezer that were left over from a class. And um, again, the same topic came up about sustainability. And one or two of the panelists said they felt uncomfortable with the word because so many people, when they hear the word sustainability, tune out. Um, there was someone in the audience that had been to a very large meeting where they'd asked them how many people they thought knew what the impact of food waste was on the environment. We're aware of that. 70% of people apparently do not connect food waste with the toll it takes on the environment. And I think that says a lot because I would say that probably reflects the views of people that come into cookery school. Yeah, 70% is quite a lot. I'd like to jump into into food waste in a little bit because I think it's a very important part of of what you focus on mm. uh, and you know what counts as being quote unquote sustainable but before we do i'm I'm very interested also in in what you were saying at the beginning in terms of sourcing your your ingredients and and what you're using um, and like you were saying it, it was very difficult at first to find some of these organic ingredients and so you I'm sure you had to leave a number of things out on a consistent basis. At the cookery school, the majority of the ingredients that are sourced are locally sourced, and uh, more than 75% of the produce that's used uh, in the classes is organic. Yeah. Um, so I guess first question is, why is buying local ingredients so important? There are lots of reasons. The first is, the more local the ingredients are to you, the less distance they have to travel. So from a travel and a transport point of view, that makes a lot of sense. Right. It even makes more sense if your local supplier is delivering to a lot of people in the same area so that their vehicles are really full and they're not giving off too many nasty emissions. Right. Or if they are giving off any emission, they're giving off less than they would if they were making lots of deliveries or coming from a long way away. Buying local does help the local economy, but most of all, buying local usually means buying seasonal as well, because they would only be growing things that are seasonal. Right, absolutely. And what and what's the what's the benefit of being seasonal? Well, firstly, food tastes completely different. Mm -hmm. It's lovely and fresh, and there's something really good about the seasonal changes in terms of variety in diet, and also the freshness of the ingredients. They're not old, they haven't been stored, they are produced and eaten. And that makes a great difference to the flavors of what you're producing. Makes a lot of sense when it's fresh. It's, I mean, yeah, you can always test it, taste it when it's fresh. Oh, yes. And there's something rather almost romantic about eating really new seasonal ingredients at the moment for example we are using asparagus ad nauseum right um the season bound to stop at any moment now but we're using asparagus as often as we can uh, we were using green garlic a lot there's still some green garlic around we used rhubarb we were using actually forced pink rhubarb because it's so beautiful 
Mm. And now we're into regular rhubarb that's going green. We use it in trifles. We use it in compots. We use it in jams and relishes. And um, when that finishes, we move into other fruits. So we have a huge variety of different recipes for whatever is seasonal and cook those. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think the variety is such an important part of it. Um, you don't get accustomed to the same flavors over and over and over again, regardless of the time of year. Absolutely. We we don't do at cookery school because we're a school. We teach people a particular cuisine. We stick to, if we're teaching, say, French cooking, the whole meal will be French. We're doing Spanish. Whatever region we're teaching, we stick to that cuisine rigidly. We like people to learn about a particular cuisine. We don't have crossovers. There are things like that are generic that everyone uses, tomato sauces, that sort of thing. They just flavor differently in different countries. But we don't do anything that is fusion. And if you are focusing, which we do, on the flavor of ingredients and cooking them simply and well, the ingredients really, really matter because you can't mask them with any spices that just override the flavor of the fresh ingredients you're using. There really is nothing to beat the flavor and the actual taste that is unmasked of a fresh ingredient. Mm. That's, I think that's a good enough reason to, to stay local and seasonal in terms of getting ingredients because uh, that flavor is so important, especially when you're, when you're cooking for others. Yeah, in fact, you'll be interested to know, know, Daniel, at one point we were doing a huge amount of chef training. We weren't teaching the chefs how to cook because chefs are good at technique. We were teaching them about food, what goes with what. Um, for example, um, in the early days, we'd have chefs coming in and they would do a stir fry and they would pop a balsamic vinegar over it. And you'd say, no, the stir fry doesn't have a balsamic vinegar over it. It comes from the east. It would have something like soya sauce on it. So we were teaching a lot about food and saying what went with what. And they were quite a cynical lot. And in those days, we used to do blind tastings. We would just do something really simple, like boil an organic piece of chicken and a non-organic piece of chicken. Boil um, some potatoes, organic and non-organic, keeping it really, really simple. Bake a bit of squash, non-organic and organic again, that sort of thing. And give them blind tastings. And they had no idea. As I say, they were really cynical. Inevitably, the flavor of the organic came through. They all voted for it, and they were always surprised. Interesting. Because they didn't use organic ingredients at all in those days. I think that, that makes a lot of sense, um, and it, it's great to see that in practice it actually comes through as well. Yeah, we don't do that anymore. We just take that for granted. Right. Uh, an, an interesting thing that I noticed uh, in terms of organic ingredients is that on your website it says that you have a procurement statement signed by all of your suppliers yes yes we do and so what exactly is that and what what does that give you what's the what's the purpose of it and the benefit of it we ask them to undertake certain things to say that they are always going to supply us with the ingredients that they've promised to supply us with which means they can't substitute anything we also ask them you know to please make sure that the uh, when things are delivered that they, they keep the carbon impact of that as low as possible. 
that they adhere to certain code of practices with their staff. So we know we're buying from someone ethical in terms of the way they treat their staff. So we're addressing the uh, fact that they are treating the planet with care and people and, of course, the produce that we get from them. Mm. We use the three Ps quite a lot when we ourselves when we're addressing snuff. We don't do it formally. We teach that in our course called Sustainable Kitchen. We actually run a level two sustainable kitchen course called Sustainable Kitchen. It's an accredited course. It's a one-day course where we teach people about sustainability. The beginning of it is spent, of that day, spent learning about terms. Because if you understand why you are, you need to be as sustainable as you can, it's far easier to do it. You're motivated to do it. So once everyone's learned terms and what they mean and the reasons for being sustainable, they then do a practical exercise where they have to go out and shop and they've got to buy some sustainable ingredients and come back and cook them. Mm. So they are learning about shopping for sustainable ingredients, looking for various accreditations like MSC for fish, leaf, red tractor, um, fair trade, uh, which are all accreditations that show that ingredients have been decently produced and that the producers have acquired a, a certain standard so that you know the produce you are having is as sustainable as it can possibly be. MSC for fish. So you know, again, that that fish is, um, you know, okay to buy. I don't agree with all the principles that they all have, but that it's, they're all really good moves in the right direction because we, are, we only use organic ingredients, but it's expensive for many farmers to get an organic accreditation. So whilst we are using them at cookery school, other people can't often afford to do that. We build that into our costs. So they are farmers that are producing produce to a very high standard, but they can't afford to have, say, the Soil Association acknowledging them. They will use other accreditations. And if they know what they're looking for, they can buy produce that is sustainable, even if not organic. So whilst we require organic produce, we try to teach other people that those other products and ingredients are worthwhile buying, even if not organic, because they are sustainable and they're local and they're seasonal. Mm. I think the most important thing is to do your best. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You won't always be able to get it right 100% of the time. But as as I'm seeing on the internet, people saying it's, it's better that you know, a million people do sustainable things, even just a little bit, than no one doing anything uh, that's sustainable. Absolutely. Because you're then on a very slow but good route to sustainability. I mean, I feel very something that I feel really, really strongly about, and I'm boring about it. And that is, it makes me rather angry that our government does nothing. Um, it's far better for things... I believe, to be coming from the top, from government. But they're not doing it. They're not addressing it. Lots of lip service. They're starting to do the odd thing. But there are so many initiatives from the bottom, and everything is starting from the bottom up. But nothing is funded. There is a lack of funds to be able to really get very good initiatives that are around the country really moving. 
that could really sort us out very, very quickly. I mean, if you look at the 5P on a plastic bag, that was dramatic. Yeah, absolutely. We need more. We need education. Money should be thrown at it at schools. Children should be learning about sustainability from the time they're five years old. So it just becomes part of their DNA. And I think in some countries they do do that. We're very bad at it. Mm. Yeah, well, hopefully that's something that will be addressed uh, quickly and much sooner than later. Yeah, I think so. I think one of, for me, one of the very hopeful things is the fact that school children are actually worried about the environment. I yep. think the things that school children have been doing are very, very positive. And I feel that the next generation is going to pick up and sort out a lot of the mess that we have created. Yeah, uh, you're seeing. We're seeing a lot of that. A lot of kids are are taking to the streets now and protesting, and they're very yeah. concerned. And as you said, I mean, your daughter was the one who really encouraged you to to get started in the first place. So I'm sure that that's happening. Yeah, and they're so aware. They are so much more aware. Yeah, exactly. And that's the hope. That is my hope that you know they will really put pressure on everyone to to do things and to get things moving again in the right direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Going back to the uh, food waste that, that you mentioned earlier, um, so the, the cookery school actually offers an entire class around food waste where students learn to make meals from food that would have otherwise been thrown away. Mm. Uh, and as, as you were saying, you know, 70% of people aren't even aware of the consequences of wasting food and, and throwing it away. But to provide some context, why is avoiding food waste so important? Or another way to, to put it is, what are the environmental consequences of wasting food? Well, um, the first thing is, it's really, it's such an irony that first world countries are wasting all this food and third world countries have people starving. Yeah. Um, that's always really upsetting. But the environmental impact is, as well as the carbon dioxide that we worry about, we used to worry a lot about, methane is now a huge problem. Um, one of the big problems about food mountains is that they are responsible for giving off greenhouse gases to methane in them that is really dangerous. Mm -hmm. And very they play a large role in global warming. There was a wonderful film that Anthony Bourdain was very involved in called Waste. And in it, they ask people about a lettuce. They show them a lettuce and they ask them how long it will take to disintegrate and just uh, it would be very good compost in your garden. But to, if that would be very quick, a couple of weeks. But if it were in a food waste mountain, mm -hmm. they ask people on the street how long it would take to, um, you know, just disintegrate and go back to sort of um, nourishing the soil. And people were guessing three weeks, six weeks, days. 25 years in a methane mountain. Wow. And because in within a methane mountain, things just do not compost and dissolve. They actually stay as they are, giving off methane, um, because the methane stops the decomposition. Mm. And that's terrifying. And when you see the methane mountains that exist everywhere <laughs> and are increasing, you realize something drastic has to be done. And we're very careful about food waste. Um, the peelings used in classes are made into vegetable stock. We you do a bottom of the fridge soup. We teach that in our waste management class. 
as I say, bread and butter puddings that we did last night. So we are very, very careful with it. We freeze a lot. Anything that's left over from classes is frozen, if not eaten immediately for further staff lunches. Even when on our professional course, when they make things on certain days where they're leftovers, those are kept for days when they might be doing something like food hygiene or a wine course where they're not cooking, will then produce the food that they cooked sometime earlier, which they'll have for their lunch, which, of course, they love and is delicious, but mm. no food waste. Freezing is a brilliant way of saving food, as is dehydrating, drying things. Right. So any means that we have um, at our disposal, we use to save food. Yeah, I think uh, I think that the food mountains is it's a very surprising fact that you know you'd think it would the food would would decompose and become soil, but if it's sitting there for yeah. twenty five years, uh, that's a very different picture than uh, than what people think. Yeah, absolutely, um, really um, terrifying. I find that quite terrifying, actually. We are always looking at the practices that we have, and. Um, one of the things we notice is when we put food out at the end of a class, everything everyone's cooked is out of face now at the end of a class because everyone's got to taste everything that's been cooked in a class. Mm -hmm. People help themselves to food and they take as much as they want. And we have very little waste that way. Most of it's eaten. If we have a corporate event where they've cooked for themselves a group, and we dish up the food because we serve their food back to them restaurant style. So we give them a plate of food, which they haven't selected themselves. That is when we find, as restaurants do, that there's food left on plates. So the way we're addressing that now is we're giving everyone far smaller portions. But so that they often we get people that really want to eat a lot. We then go around with all the food again and we provide seconds for anyone that wants it. And that has cut down drastically on our food waste because people are choosing what they want to eat, not just being presented with a plate of food. Right. One question that I have, um, I think, which I'm not sure if you if you encounter this, but, you know, when supermarkets sell such an expensive food, how would you respond to someone who says that they would rather just buy fresh food than use leftovers? Um, well, I would say what one would have to tell them. I think that's why it's so important to have the background to understanding sustainability, because if they actually were to see a food mountain and they were to know what the waste, the havoc that waste food is causing um, and the damage it's causing to the environment, I think they would then be motivated to try and not waste food. Mm. And I think you have to give them a very good reason for it. That's why I think an understanding sustainability is very important, not just giving people rules and saying you mustn't waste food. Well, yeah. of course you mustn't, but they're not going to understand the implication of, say, someone, as someone said last night, when you throw some food away, say that people throw an apple away. Mm -hmm. They just think they're holding an apple in their hand and well, just one apple, I'll throw it away. But they haven't thought about what has gone into producing that apple in the first place, the water that's been used, the, the labor, and all that sort of thing. And then they're not thinking what it's going to do to the environment when they do throw it away, that that is, in, in the end, perhaps going to be producing methane. Yeah, it's true. And do you think that people can save money by being more sustainable and by wasting less food? Oh, 
Yes, yes. I saw something that said if people at home really were careful with their waste, in a week they would be able to produce seven extra meals a week if they were clever with the way they used leftover food. Wow. That's an enormous number of meals. I don't know. I That's a figure that I've just seen bandied around. Mm. But if you think about what people throw away, for example, as I said, take something simple like bread and milk. You've straight away got a meal instead of throwing six slices of bread away and a half a litre of milk. You've straight away got a bread and butter pudding, throwing a bit of leftover cheese or salami or chorizo or bacon into it that's lying around in the fridge, you've created a meal. If you go through your fridge with all the leftovers and manky vegetables and things like that, and you use them, um, you're going to have a wonderful soup. So we've already, just on simple things, got two meals extra a week. Yeah, I, th- I think it makes sense. Um, oftentimes, sustainability is really about removing uh, or rather optimizing waste. Totally, totally. I mean, think if you have a roast one night, you've got a few slices of roast left over, mince it, fry it with some onions, add a few veg to it. It's lengthening things with vegetables is also a secret. And um, mash some potatoes, you've got a great sort of pie of some sort. Again, that's your third meal. Very, very yeah. easy. Just, I think, it brings us back to something very basic. I think a lot of people don't know how to cook. And if more people knew how to cook, I think we'd also have less waste. I think cooking should be a compulsory subject at schools. Yeah, it's interesting you, you say that because it's something that I think you've been, well, first of all, you, you teach um, how to cook. So clearly that's a, something that you you think about a lot. But you, you have mentioned as well that um, if everyone in the UK could cook even just a little bit, that, and, and I'll quote you here uh, in an article I read, that many of the ills that have beset us would start to recede. Yeah. What what exactly is, what are some of these issues that, that you're seeing aside from, from food waste? Well, if people can't cook, they're eating um, takeaways a large part of the time. People have an absolute horror of salt. When we season food, um, there's, oh, so much salt. So what we do at the start of every lesson is the teacher measures out five grams of salt, which is the amount they're actually saying is okay for everyone to eat a day. If you think five grams of salt, if there were, say, three people in or four people in um, a family, it's a nice rounded tablespoon of salt. Mm. You don't use that much in cooking for a family in a day. You use far less if you're cooking at home. So when people are buying takeaway food, it's absolutely loaded with salt and hidden sugars. The obesity is a problem apart from waste. So cooking sustainably or cooking at home prevents that happening. Also, sustainability covers how people are treated. And eating that sort of food is leading to a lot of illness in society. I mean, physical illness, you know, heart attacks, strokes, all the things they keep warning us about because people can't cook. And if they were cooking at home, they would lessen the impact of salt and sugar on their bodies. Because if you're eating locally and seasonally, it's fresh and it's healthy. Mm. There's one thing everyone agrees on, it's about sugars, cutting sugars. And if you're eating at home, you can cut sugars. For example, if we are 
using apples. We use dessert apples even to cook at cookery school because when they cook, the natural sweetness in the apple sweetens further and you need no sugar. It's natural sugars that are fine to eat. So we would say stew apples. They'll be as sweet as anything. Don't use any sugar. And it's so easy to do. I think what we try to teach people is how accessible cooking is and how very easy it is to acquire cooking skills with very little effort. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, it, it makes sense to keep it simple, straightforward, so people will actually start practicing it rather than learning some very niche and overly complicated techniques that are not really helpful in terms of how you cook on a day-to-day basis at home. Although we do not have to say we do have a demand for, at the moment, baking because of um, television programs on baking. Right. Everyone wants to learn how to bake. So we teach people how to make things like croissant and pan au chocolat and mm. wonderful cakes because there's a demand for that. So we do it, mm-hmm. but we use really beautiful products. We don't use any trans fats. We don't use things that are artificial. Everything is beautiful that we use beautiful flour, beautiful eggs, that sort of thing, butter, straight from the producer. So whatever we produce tastes really delicious. But if you have a small amount of something like that as a treat, it's absolutely fine. And I think you can't be too rigid about and holy about only eating healthily and sustainably. I think sustainability is important, but I think you can, within that, you can still have treats. Absolutely. Switching gears uh, to a different type of food, you offer a class that's called the Ultimate Meat and Poultry class. Uh, It's basically a five and a half hour intensive where students learn to cook nine meat dishes using different meats because there's so many available these days. And some of those meats include chicken, duck, guinea fowl, beef, and lamb. Obviously, all the meat that you use is organic and sustainably sourced. First of all, I am I am a meat eater, so I think that's it's a very interesting course, and I think uh, I'm sure that you're focusing a lot on how to cook everything and use the whole animal in the case of like a, like a chicken. Um, but there are some people who say that meat is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Yes. What would you say to that? You're absolutely right, and um, I, do, I, I have to say I am a little conflicted about that mm. because um, we – a lot of people still do want to eat meat, but so we run the class. I have to say as well that everything on the class except our duck breast that we use and the guinea fowl are organic. We are unable to source either of those two products as organic. Mm-hmm. So we start the class by saying to everyone, we've checked on these. We go back to source to make sure that they're well produced and they come from a reliable source. But if we're teaching you how to do those, we're unable to get organic products there because you have to be utterly transparent. It's really important. Those are the only two things at cookery school that we have that we're unable to buy as organic. Mm. But having said that, we have we made a decision that what we were going to do was we were going to still do the meat and poultry class, still teach everything, but everyone was going to have a smaller portion so that they will learn to cook them, but we're not giving them huge portions that in the early days people would be eating of those particular products. So what we do is we make sure that we have lots of green veg now on that class. Um, they learn to make a Yorkshire pudding anyway, that we have lots of lovely potatoes that go with them. So they are eating some meat, 
and tasting it and learning how to cook it, but we're trying to supplement as much as we can with vegetables. You are absolutely right. That is something that I have to say I do feel conflicted about. But at the same time, it's this thing about taking a view. We're not a vegetarian or vegan cookery school. We are teaching anything that people want to learn to do to encourage them to learn to cook. Having said that, we do um, run a vegetarian course now. It used to be a class, but we've now introduced a vegetarian course. And they were telling me yesterday that the one, the next one we have is running absolutely full. Great. Which is because of the demand. It's a midweek course. It's a four-day intensive course. Oh, wow. We run... We also run them once a week. We do a vegan class, and that too is very popular. Interestingly enough, not with vegans, which is what I thought we would have. I thought we'd have vegans attending, but people that are just interested in veganism have been attending those classes. Interesting. So we do offset the meat class. Um, with doing things that are good for the environment. I think one has to do that. Yeah. Okay, should I add something else? I think because we are using mainly organic meat, and I mean the guinea fowl are free range, obviously, the impact of using organic produce and organically produced meat, which is grass-fed, is far less than using than the meat people would buy that's just badly produced meat in a supermarket where the animals that are not grass-fed are being fed on things like corn, which could be fed to people. So they're being doubly wasteful because of what they're being fed. Mm. And I think if you're using really good meat, and the other thing is a very small piece of meat, we are highly over-proteinized. People have become accustomed to using far too much meat in their diets. So even though we are teaching them a meat class, and a meat class to cook meat and poultry, if they cook it and they have a small piece and they use whatever they've cooked for a number of meals, that also makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And moving to um, uh, focusing on the cookery school itself, um, I think one of the most exciting parts about uh, your school is that it's the only one in London, only cooking school in London, to have received three stars from the Sustainable Restaurant Association. And so, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Only three stars ever, because we have been sustainable before the Sustainable Restaurant Association started. Sustainability has been at the root of what we do. So, we do have um, in-house little giggles about things like when we hear restaurants saying, oh, we are not going to be using plastic Um, in the, uh, by 2022, we'll no longer be using plastic in our restaurant. Right. We think, well, we haven't been using it for the last 10 or 12 years. Um, It's just very much what we do. We don't even really think about it. So when we see people setting targets that we achieved, before things sustainability was considered to be cool, yeah, um, you know it is rather amusing. Yeah, um, I can I can certainly see that um, how how it is funny from your point of view. I, I guess the the benefit is that it for the the association to provide you those stars um, is that it's kind of like this third party association that can essentially say we've taken a look at what the cookery school is doing and we can also independently verify that they are indeed 
very impartial. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so, I mean, you've been practicing sustainability for, um, well, it's kind of always been a part of the cooking school's ethos, and you've removed pra- uh, plastic about 10, 12 years ago. But how many years have you had the three stars from the Sustainable Restaurant Association? They, I'm trying to think when they started. Since they started and we joined them, we were very, we joined them very early on. Okay. Um, we've had three stars. They have made us look at ourselves in a different way. That, for me, is one of the strengths of belonging to the SRA because it makes us question what we do. Mm. We're always questioning what we do and seeing how we can move forward. The moment some of our recycling practices are changing because the people that do the recycling have extended what they're able to recycle. You know, we recycle coffee grounds, we recycle oil, um, of course, food, um, the bit of end of food waste that goes off uh, for recycling. We weigh that every day. We look at what's in it so that we can see what we can do to cut down on any food waste. So we're always looking at those practices. Uh, Things that you use in in a kitchen, for example, uh, pastry bags were plastic. We now, well, we don't, you can use washable ones, but that's not really practical in the school. So we use ones that are, will degrade. They will actually just Mm. degrade. They're made from probably maize. Uh, Likewise, plastic gloves, vinyl gloves. When you're dishing up and you, in, in a food environment, you use them. We've stopped using those. We found really good ones. We used them a few years ago and no one liked them. They went back to vinyl for a bit. And then we bought back these gloves that, and I've just insisted that we get used to them. And we are used to them. And um, they also, when you're finished with them, they just degrade. Mm. And I think, you know, it would be better if you didn't have to use them. But unfortunately, we do in certain circumstances. No longer using vinyl or plastic gloves, but gloves that are degradable. And I think those sort of things, we keep on saying, oh, why are we doing this or that? And Someone will question it and we'll find an alternative um, practice or an alternative product that we can use. Yeah. Do you think it's possible for other cooking schools and restaurants to get to your level of sustainability? I definitely do. I think that you can't throw a switch and become sustainable overnight. What we've done, we've extended our practices over a number of years. We started with limited number of things that we did, decided to do, like using organic produce giving up um, plastics, not using fish, using fish that was unsustainable. We stopped using tuna and skate and endangered species long before anyone was saying you shouldn't be using them. Right. I mean, if you look at restaurant menus now, they've got things on them like hake, pollock. 15, 16 years ago, we were using turbot and a lot of turbot, a lot of um, sea bass, real, what I would have called, luxury halibut luxury fishes then hmm. but you, you just don't get them anymore and they are threatened even um salmon fresh salmon this time of the year you couldn't wait for this time of the year to get the new season salmon that came in we won't use any farmed salmon there's no argument at all for using salmon that is farmed organic and otherwise they just we shouldn't be eating it um so we don't use that we use pollock, we use mackerel, lots of mussels. We only use sustainable fish that's local and line port. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, other restaurants 
A lot of restaurants are following suit. I think that there are strides in certain areas, but too many people still are not doing it. And I think they feel that to make a change to sustainability is a huge step. And I wish that someone could say to them, it's not. Once you decide you're going to go along that road, you move along it slowly, making changes as and when. And each little change you make has a huge impact because if a lot of people are doing that, the collective impact is really grand. Absolutely. And yeah, that's what we were saying earlier. And what if we look at people at home? I know that you know many people probably do want to try to reduce their carbon footprint. They do want to try reducing their plastics use. Um, but you know, it's not always obvious how to be sustainable in the kitchen. What are one or two changes people listening to this podcast can do or make to have an environmentally friendly kitchen? Firstly, I would say use um, any ingredients you have in your fridge, the full plan, what you want to buy at the supermarket, so you don't just overfill your fridge. Mm. Try and shop, say, once a week or twice a week, and use everything up before you restock so that you have a nice empty fridge before you stock up again. That way you will be using everything up. And as I said, probably at the end of the week you've got milk. Use your milk up. Actually, a very easy way of using milk is making ricotta cheese. You just Mm. put your milk into a saucepan, uh, warm it, bring it up to just below the boil, um, and you add a little bit of lemon juice or scrap of vinegar to it, and it just separates out. You strain it, and you've got lovely homemade ricotta cheese in a flash to use, and the way that comes out of it is great to use if if you're a serious cook in breads or pancakes. So again, you're not wasting even that bit of milk at the top of your fridge. Oh, wow. I'm going to try that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, and it's fun. And it's such fun to make. And it tastes very different. And if you wanted to make paneer, which, you know, the Indian sort of Mm -hmm. cheese, you take that, it's exactly the same as ricotta, and you press it, you push it, put it into some, onto um, uh, some paper, and you put a weight on top of it, so that it becomes a solid piece, mm. and that's your pannier. Oh, fantastic. So, you yeah. know, there are all sorts of things you can do that are simple if you've just been shown how to do them. But I would say um, shopping carefully, using everything up, and just planning ahead a little. Also, a big impact would be if they start using um, environmentally uh, products in the house for cleaning. Um, we use some carbon-neutral products in the house. In fact, they're made by someone called Delphus Eco. We've been using them for years. They were only commercial products. They have no scents. They have no phosphates in them, no bleachers. So when they go into the water and as effluent and they run out, they're not affecting wildlife or river life or anything like that or sea life. They are just totally carbon neutral. And you can buy them. And the supermarkets do keep products like that. So instead of using household cleaners that are really abrasive, full of phosphates, full of chlorines, just have a look around and start using gentler things in the house. Vinegar is great for cleaning. You know, there are all sorts of alternatives you can use that are gentle, and that is a step to being sustainable without too much effort. So it's all those tiny little things that add up. Turning off lights when you leave rooms. If you can, can using good energy as your electricity supplier, there are lots of good energy suppliers to find one of those so that, again, you're using 
rather than coal or uh, gas-made energy or even nuclear energy, which is, is sustainable. Mm-hmm. You are using wind-driven energy. Um, I think it depends, you know, how far you want to go. But each tiny thing you do is a help. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And as we were saying at the beginning, uh, even just making small steps at the beginning, if everyone did just a tiny bit, it would certainly have a big knock-on effect. You know, we were saying, I agree with you completely, Daniel. We were saying last night at um, the uh, guest, uh, Sustainable Astronomy event that um, I was saying, actually, that when I first came to live in England, I think I must tell you, I am 75 years old. So I have seen, I come from a time when there was no plastic, there was no tin foil. Mm. We ate, we ate locally as, because there was no other alternative. That's just how you lived. Even when I came to live in London in the 60s, that's how people were eating because you ate what was produced at the time. They didn't fly in food from all around the world. We still ate like that. Everyone had to cook, even if it was something like a tin of bully beef that was sort of instant food. You'd have to put it into a frying pan and eat, um, you know, and heat it. Right. Um, there were no such things as instant meals. It's in my lifetime that I've seen these changes that are really, you know, enormous. And um, we were saying last night, um, I was saying that um, I, I remember a time when the world wasn't this way, that if you could roll back time for 50 years, it's not a lot of time, but if you could roll it back, there's a lot, and look at what we used to do, those practices, and put them into place now, which is what a lot of people are trying to do. We would be able to reverse a lot of things. But when I first came to live in England, the government used to have public information programs on all sorts of different issues, and they would repeatedly show on your television so that you were learning. You were actually learning about things. If they even instituted simple things like that now, Talking about waste, informing people on what our behavior is doing to the environment, I think you could see, we would see a substantial change in people trying to help, but they don't have the information or the knowledge, and there's no one really giving it to them, particularly if you're not someone that is into sustainability yourself. Where do you learn about it? Yeah. I think it's a very good point. Um, uh, I think education is probably the first and foremost aspect in making any changes. Yeah. Uh, because if people if people aren't aware, then there's no way that they'll want to change or they'll even know how to change or what to change for that matter. Daniel, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that that is the first step. And lots of people are trying to do, there are loads of people doing loads of things around the country there isn't one real big coordinating body or that is taking responsibility or government that is saying, hold on, stop, we can do something about this. And I think um, young people are demanding that of them. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of, of education, uh, do you have any books about sustainable cooking or environmentally friendly food choices uh, that you can run, recommend for anyone who's interested in, in learning more about it? Now, that's a really interesting question because I've never been asked that before. And I'm just having a little think about it. And I can't. I'm sure there must be. I think that they probably are. But I think they give a lot of theory, probably. 
Um, mm. I would say um, most people that use that I've known that I do know people that have written about them and have suggested recipes and things that you can follow. But I think they're very limited. I think that they come at it from the wrong angle. I think you've got to come at it much more practically. I think it's got to be doing rather than saying or writing. I think you need action. I understand what you're asking. You're saying if someone wants to become, understand sustainability, how do they go about doing it? Mm. I would think the best way of doing it is actually going onto the web. The website would have loads of information. I think it's a far better medium for me than books for people that really are where the public want to learn. I'd say they'd be far better advised. There are piles of people doing wonderful sustainable things, and most of them are writing about them online. And there is so much out there that you can do that I think that would be my advice. Rather start by looking at what the web has to offer, and you will find a few agencies that you can then follow. They, many people offer classes, lectures, and they're wonderful things that are happening. And I think that's a better way forward personally than reading a book on it. I, th I think that's fair enough. There's, I mean, the internet is, it has everything now. Uh, there's so many resources there. And where can people find out more about what you're doing, learn more about your thought process and ultimately sign up for a cooking class? And we try to be as comprehensive as we can on our own website. And people do come to us mainly through the internet. They, I'd say the majority of our bookings are word of mouth or what they read about us on the internet or occasionally in the media. Um, and if anyone goes to the Cookery School website, it just, you know, we are at Cookery School at Little Portland Street, they will find us on the web and go to our site and we try to provide as much information as we can. Great. And so if people want to book a class, they should just go to cookeryschool.co.uk and uh, they'll be able to find all the classes there. Yes. And the site is very user friendly. Everything is then. We love talking to people as well. So if someone wants to know anything about a class, just to call us or email us and we'll be in touch because we feel it's really important. We're the only cookery school that publishes everything that is done in every class. We feel when someone comes in, they need to know exactly what is going to be learned. And we don't just give everyone one or two things to do. We teach very differently. If we are teaching something, we'll probably do, depends on the class, but a half a dozen different dishes. And everyone, in some classes, people will make a few of them. Other times there'll be shared cooking because that way what happens is you learn a technique repeatedly and in a reinforced way. If different people are doing the same technique or learning the same skill, but spreading it so they can all see permutations of the same technique being learned at the same time. Hmm. You then go home and you have a, a better idea than just doing one or two little things yourself. Great. Well, it sounds like um, a very approachable and very accessible uh, learning style or teaching style, I should say. And uh, for anyone who's interested in giving it a try, I think I think there's no reason to, to not try it. Uh, Daniel, I think I should add, because I haven't really spoken, I'll just quickly tell you about teaching style. Because of my background in teaching, we believe one of the most important ways of learning is by making mistakes. 
So if someone makes a mistake in the class, or if one of our students can happen, we pounce on it and we look to see why that error has been made. Mm -hmm. And we repeat it so that everyone can see how you correct it. Because it's all very well doing something perfectly at a class, going home and making a mistake and not knowing what to do. But if you've been fortunate enough to see something go wrong in a class, you won't panic, you'll know what to do, and you'll correct it. Right. So that's one of the very important teaching um, styles that we have, is using errors. Using mistakes are one of the best ways of learning. Our classes are not daunting. We're very relaxed. They're very structured. But you can't learn if you're feeling anxious. They've got to be relaxed. They've got to be fun. And you've got to be able to ask questions. And most importantly, you've got to do things. You learn by doing far more than by just remembering or reading. Yeah, I think that makes all the difference. And especially, as we were saying, knowledge and education is such an important component in making and affecting change in terms of sustainability. So the fact that it is approachable I think that's that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. So, Rosalind, thank you so much for your time. This has been enlightening and, and very interesting. And I think uh, there's no reason for anyone, like we were just saying, to not give uh, the cookery school at Little Portland Street a try uh, and, and see how sustainable cooking can be done and how easy it is to to start cooking at home. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate your your time today. And Perhaps I'll see, I'll see you at one of your classes in the very near future. I would love that. Daniel, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about sustainability, to talk about cookery school, and we would welcome anyone that would love to join us. We do love teaching. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about Rosalind and the Cookery School, please visit their website at cookeryschool.co.uk or like their Facebook page, at Cookery School London. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know about new episodes. We're on Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, and really anywhere else where you can listen to podcasts. And let us know you listened to this episode on Instagram. Tag us, at Cookery School London and at Sustainability Matters Today. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks and talk to you soon.